Hey Kyle, Tyler Garwood here from Kodiak, Alaska, sitting on a bluff overlooking the ocean, listening to the birds chirp in the forest behind me, enjoying some sun. I'll be here as a Kodiak bear tour guide for the summer. Just wanted to say thanks for keeping me company on the road trip up here and keep up the awesome podcasts. I enjoy listening to everyone. Keep it real, y'all. Thanks for sending that in, Tyler. If any of you want to send me a quick voice memo, you can do it by clicking the Voice Memos app on your phone and emailing it to info at kyle.surf. Let me know who you are, where you're tuning in from, some details about where you are in this moment right now, and uh, we'd love to play it. Just try and keep it under 30 seconds. It is the day after the Motherfucker Awards. Uh, I just got back to my spot after having this conversation with Matt Taibbi. Um, he was nice enough to fly out uh, to present the air category for the bank that did the most to finance dirty energy. Um, and he presented the award to Natasha Legero and Moshe Kasher. That video is going to be up at the, uh, the motherfuckerawards.com in the next two days. Oh, man, I'm still riding the high from the buzz last night, and it feels a little bit like the whole thing happened to someone else. We had an amazing show, sold out, ton of laughs. The comedians did so well. Uh, The presenters knocked it out of the park, and motion graphics designers, filmmakers, this huge team. At a certain point, it just feels like um, I'm being swept along by a current... (laughs) But uh, it's great. I'm really, uh, really happy with how it turned out. And I um, hope you all go to themotherfuckerawards.com to give it a look. I'm going to get right into this interview. It's um, one of my favorites ever. Matt is just a, a brilliant and um, thoughtful guy. And I'm really happy to know him and um, now call him my friend. Matt Taibbi is a writer for Rolling Stone who has reported on politics, media, finance, and sports. Taibbi has authored several books, including Insane Clown President, The Divide, Griftopia, and The Great Derangement. For those of you who don't know, this is an ad-free podcast. Um, For now, I'm doing Patreon. So if any of you guys get value out of this show, please consider donating on my website or Click the link below. And I'm giving you guys a lot of websites right now, but uh, Kyle.surf is one, and the Motherfucker Awards is, is the other. Um, but let's get right into it. Um, you can reach out to me anytime on Instagram and all of the places. And without further preamble, please welcome to the show, Matt Taibbi. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for showing up last night, man. Thank you, Kyle. That was uh, 
That was, was a lot fun. of fun. That was a lot of fun, and uh, I appreciate... It was odd, but it was fun. It was very odd. It was yeah. called the Motherfucker Awards. It was, it was. It was great. Um, <laughs> I appreciate your faith in the idea. It was a, it was a bold and weird uh, idea. I think I, I, I would have been remiss if I didn't participate. Yeah, yeah. You, like, I feel like a lot of the journalists got... Felt like a satisfaction out of just being able to say motherfucker. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's cathartic. Right. Like so much of what I see you do is um, understanding a complex issue, explaining it simply and trying to explain it in a way where people will pay attention. Like you're, you're keenly aware of people's attention. Right. And it seems like your mission on earth is to get their attention in one way or another. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's kind of my niche in the business um, or has been anyway, is uh, a lot of the most interesting and, and important news stories are actually really complex a and really boring B. And so there's a, there's a place there where a certain kind of uh, approach is needed where you, you need to sort of bring storytelling techniques, uh, humor, whatever you, whatever you can do to make it concise and interesting for people and, and allow them to get through really boring topics is, uh, is part of the idea. Right. And I know that you've been a fan of comedy for a while. You're a fan of oh, uh, yeah. Sam Kinison yeah, and Bill all, Hicks, Bill Hicks, all these yeah, guys, Richard Pryor growing up. I mean, that, that was the thing yeah. I was like li- listening to all those albums. Yeah. yeah. What'd you like about those guys? I mean, back in the eighties and early nineties when I was growing up, the, you know, standup was so huge um, back then. It's it's really I think it's different from today. Like the standup comics had this huge role in society. They were really listened to. They were like oracles, you know. And um, the thing that I that I really enjoyed about a lot of those comics was the way that they were uh, they were so directly kind of challenging the kind of the, the consensus in the news and this con- conventional wisdom and just offering this profane iconoclastic, you know, in your face, um, alternative viewpoint. And the, the goal was to be as outrageous as possible. And the, and it's, it's a little different now. I mean, I think comic comedies, I don't know what, what you think, but, but back then a lot of those, a lot of those comics, I mean, some of that stuff hasn't aged all, all that well because of that. Uh, what do you mean? Some of it hasn't aged all that well. Well, if you listen to like Eddie Murphy's routines right now, I mean like, you know, some, they were, they seemed funny at the time. Oh but, yeah. But, and then he's like, you're not, you're not a fag. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. dude, you're super homophobic. <laughs> right, yeah. Wildly homophobic. Yeah. 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 Faggots are guys too. That whole, that whole right. thing, you know? Um, and there's, there's a lot of humor like that out there. Uh, but at the time, I think what people, um, you know, in this generation might find hard to understand is that the, the sort of, normal culture back then was was so stultifying and conservative this was the age of tipper gore and the parents music resource center when they wanted to label record you know music albums and and uh, any kind of um off-color commentary at all was like forbidden so there was it was seen as like this liberal value to be outrageous to be to be disgusting to be the alternative and um and so I think that's one of the reasons why uh, they, they, a lot of those comics went to those places. Right. Yeah. yeah I, uh, one thing that I so enjoy about comedians like that, too, is their ability to 
ask for as little as possible from the audience and give as much as possible. So mm-hmm. it's just like they're so good at setting up a premise in as few words as possible and then getting as much as many laughs as possible. Oh, totally. Whereas I think the the place where people's attention is lost is in that premise set up a lot where you're asking for too much like no no let me explain this concept a little more a little and let me just blovate a little bit more and then you lose them yeah no yeah you have to have yeah it's got to be immediate right everything's about timing and comedy i mean i you know it's the same in writing you can't if you have too many extra words the joke doesn't work right you know and uh i think all all of those early masters you know um richard pryor richard pryor would would get into a routine in in half a second you know and you were you were you were into it immediately so i think yeah you're absolutely right i'm good so the world's most powerful investment bank is a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money (laughs) How, how long did it take you to write that in the way that you wrote that. So, um, and you're referring to Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs. Yeah. This was a story that, um, we Rolling Stone assigned me a story about basically the financial crisis. And And the the reason I'm saying that is because that's a concise fucking setup. Right. Yeah. And people got it. Yeah. Yeah. I just found out today actually that there, there, there's the EU, um, there's an enforcement body that now holds what they call vampire squid conferences, uh, <laughs> where they, where they talk about, uh, corrupt organizations. Uh, I was, I was contacted by a lawyer who, who was part of one this morning. Talk so. about a legacy. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty cool. Um, but Rolling Stone has this thing where they, sometimes if you're just telling the story and giving too much information, they want you to pull back and give a big picture paragraph they call it, they used to call it wisdoms like we want you to add a wisdom here and um i had done my story on goldman and they said uh it needs a wisdom at the end and so i uh it was late at night um i think i was high actually if i remember correctly and uh, and i i just typed that up you yeah. know, in a few minutes but then it, that ended up being the lead of the piece so that was interesting that's great do you write high a lot <laughs> not anymore no i'm i'm old and a dad and all that right. stuff so yeah do yeah. you find that it makes you like would it make make you more creative, but in, for shorter stints of time? Yeah, I, 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 I podcast high sometimes, and I find that I get really funny for ten minutes, <laughs> and then I forget if I've already asked the question. Right, it's probably an it's probably a net negative. Right, right, <laughs> yeah, 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 overall, overall, it's, yeah. yeah, it's like a, a short term loan that's really volatile. Right, it seems yeah, really exactly. good early on, and yep. then it raises the rates on you. Yeah, exactly, and then you start seeing those dips. I think I think that's probably true with almost all all drugs i mean uh i've known a lot of and and i've been there myself a lot of writers um you know used to do things like speed and uppers uh the problem with that is that uh you you lose the ability to sniff out your own stupidity uh and you you (laughs) go i'm a genius (laughs) yeah i'm a genius i'm going on and on and on right and you you can actually see that uh in in certain writers that they you know that they've, they've clearly been dipping a little bit uh into the into the pool too much right you can tell 
what drug they're on by the way that they write. Absolutely. Yeah. And Hunter, Hunter Thompson was hilarious that way. I mean, like if, if people who are fans of, of his writing, it's actually kind of an interesting archaeological experiment to go back through his books and try to figure out which, which drug inspired which book. <laughs> right. um, it's pretty clear to me that Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72, uh, which is sort of his classic campaign book, um, that, that, that was a very amphetamine uh, induced book. It's got a lot of really long passages. Um, there, there are a lot of sections in that book where he says things like, you know, at this stage in my life, I need huge fires in my life all the time, you know? And so he's, he's got this weird intensity that's that's constantly pounding through the book. So I, I think that was a speed book. Like, uh, like setting up a conflict in his life to use that energy to write better. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of comics have that fear that if they begin to leave to lead to wholesome of a life they won't be funny anymore i think there's something to that don't you i think that there's something to like happiness is the problem right right yeah, yeah. well i'm doing my morning gratitude journal and i'm getting nine hours of sleep and waking <laughs> up and i'm boring now right well i think that there's something to uh lack of sleep like mm-hmm. i i don't i've never done speed but um I take psychedelics periodically mm-hmm. and find that it's, I get huge creative bursts. Sure. Um, and I also find that sometimes, um, like middle of the night for ideas, uh, or lack of sleep, like there's something about just shifting a little bit. And mm-hmm. I was, I was listening to a podcast with, um, a sleep expert recently, huh. uh, and he was talking about dreaming mm-hmm. and how if you don't, um, dream deeply if you don't get REM sleep uh consistently that uh will start to bleed into waking life mm-hmm. in the form of delirium right. so you'll get these kind of like dreamy moments in yeah. your waking life which can probably provide a lot of creativity but also bring early onset alzheimers <laughs> that's interesting uh that's probably true you know i think i think uh it, you can definitely tell when people are sleep deprived that um, uh, they they don't assert themselves as much. I I, I remember talking to uh, a campaign aide uh, when I was covering one of the uh, I think it was the Kerry campaign in '04, and one of the things about the campaign is that you don't get a lot of sleep. Um, if you're uh, towards the end of the schedule, the candidates are doing so much that you you get into a hotel, you have maybe five hours to relax, and then you got to go back out. And the the uh, what I noticed was that the the reporters asked fewer questions the more events there were like they they started started to drift (laughs) off and they were more docile they didn't challenge as much so maybe that was a conscious strategy i don't know right go back to the same five questions pull these ones out of the rolodex how so how has your how do you keep your writing fresh now that you're a dad and how has it changed like I would like to get your, if you're willing to talk about it, sure. like your evolution as a writer and substances and strategies um, and how you felt like that affected various of your works, um, many I, of which I'm, I'm familiar with. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, um, I, I think being being a, a parent is is definitely difficult because it, kids take precedence over everything so you you have to build your entire life around them you can't have um, a whole lot of scheduled time for anything else so if 
X if comedy, if writing, or if whatever was the center of your life previously, it can't be anymore. Uh, so you have to learn how to do that in your other time, you know? And, um, but you know, I, I, it hasn't had that big of an effect on me. I think if anything, uh, Louis C.K. talked about this once. He was saying that when you're a parent, you enjoy these little holidays, like when you put your kid in the, the car on one side and you walk around the other side of the car, you're like, oh, thank God. So in that sense... And that's like, my holiday. That's right? my holiday, that's my, yeah. Like the yeah. whole joke is yeah, that, like yeah, just yeah. putting them in the fucking car. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, you know, if I, if I get five hours just to sit at a computer and, and, and work, it's actually... Um, doesn't feel like work as much anymore. So that's the way I choose to look at it anyway. Right. And, uh, G- God, man, Louis C. I was just watching the 2017 Louis C.K. Did you ever watch that special? No. Was it good? Oh, it's really good, man. I mean, his, he opens when he says, um, well, so abortion, uh, it's either like, taking a shit or it's killing a baby it's one or the other there's it's 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 and then he like flips it and he says if uh if i thought they were killing babies i would be out front picketing every day right they think they're killing babies i just don't see it that way right and it's such a brilliant flip yeah yeah and it's so ballsy to come out like he came out with that joke and that's a that's a tough joke to deliver to his audience right because you know that's kind of a taboo subject right you know like you can't you can't even go there at all for the most part so i i I like that about him i like he his well his material is always risky and he um he puts himself out out there for criticism and it's often really self-deprecating but uh yeah no that that's 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 definitely funny yeah Yeah. so when you were younger would you experiment and totally cool if you don't want to talk about this but would you experiment with different substances writing and see how that would affect your work um sure yeah i mean when i was in russia uh you know I, i had a newspaper um called the exile which has gotten me in some trouble uh but Th- that was, was the comedy one, right? Yeah, it was a it was it was supposed to be sort of like uh, Screw magazine or Spy magazine or Charlie Hebdo, like one of these like really extreme satirical um, biweeklies, and we had to write every two weeks, you know, tens of thousands of words. It felt like anyway. So we were we were taking every drug under the sun to try to stay awake for a couple of days at a time. And, um, you know, I don't, I, you know, I look back at the, some of the stuff that we wrote during that period and a lot of it was pretty, pretty terrible, but uh, some of it was funny. I don't know. I mean, it, um, I, I think I've subsequently found that being absolutely sober is probably the best way to, to do it. But right. the uh, net, net gain yeah, is the highest yeah, there. Yeah, I, th- I think ultimately it's it's a, it's a net plus to be to be not on drugs when right. you're when you're writing. It was interesting what you're saying about how um, certain people on certain drugs don't have the self critic in there and how important that is mm-hmm. and like the teeter-totter between having the confidence to say what you really mean and and believe that like personally I struggle with this like the belief that I have something interesting to say that people will want to hear right and also not getting too ahead of yourself and thinking that you're king of the world yeah 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 I, I think it's I think writing is different from other kinds of um creative arts because 
with singing, with stand-up comedy, with acting, so much of it is is purely about confidence, right? Like you you really need to just get up there and believe in yourself and belt it out and that's like half the battle, right? Uh, whereas writing is is very significantly about self-criticism. It's about um, reading what you've written and trying to f- figure out what's unattractive about your narrative voice um, and you know which which of your ideas are are um, are going to be off-putting to audiences uh, and it's 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 a painful kind of job in that sense that's one of the reasons I think there are not that many really good writers because um, a lot of it is just thinking about how much you suck <laughs> and and especially when you're a young person it's not um, it's not something that a lot of people are really up for, you know? So, uh, I'm, it, writing is a different medium in, in that respect, but you, you learn to be addicted to that process. Uh, and it becomes a, you know, almost like it's a spiritual thing for a lot of people. It is, this is how not only am I going to become a better writer, but I'm going to become a better person because, um, I'm finding out about, uh, th- aspects of my personality that are that are negative, that are bad, you know, that that reflect poorly. You know, do you, do you look back at something three days later and say, "Wow, I really thought that. I really said that. Like that looks bad," you know, and 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 you you learn from it. Right. Would yeah. you describe uh, your own writing process as a spiritual experience? Um, yeah, I mean, in a in a way, yeah, definitely. I think it's 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 my way of um, you know, I'm I'm not a like an artist i'm not you know one of the I mean, the great you know i'm not raymond chandler or anything like that but it, it is the, it is a way that i stay in touch with the world and try to f- try to figure out how i'm doing and and try to um if things are not going well in my life that's that's a way that i can um do better I, I feel i can get back on track by you know telling a good story about something yeah. you know what's an example of that um, I mean, throughout my career, one of the things about journalism that's 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 good as opposed to fiction is that you know if if you get off off track in your own personal life, the challenge is just to go out and find something that's true, right, and communicate that to people. You don't you don't have to rely on some insight, um, you know, or some story that you've invented. You can just go off and and try to faithfully depict something that actually happened in reality, and that can be very relaxing, right? Like you, the the challenge is just to to go and dig up as many facts as you can, and communicate it. And as long as you focus on that, you take your mind off yourself, and and you immerse yourself in that process. And um, that's always been very therapeutic for me. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, it doesn't always work out, but but that's that's what it's for for me. It's interesting that you describe it that way because that seems like a form of meditation because in some ways meditation is just being able to notice more mm-hmm. in your field of vision you're you're bringing in more data and when you walk into a room like let's say a press conference your job is to bring in relevant data and then churn it through your mind and spit it out in a way that's coherent. Right, right. And meditation is also about expelling the self, right? So you you um, you, you try to eliminate the 
the distracting things that are going on in your mind, the unpleasant thoughts, all those things. I think, you know, in a really, really weird way, uh, reporting is also like that. Like, just like you say, when you go into a scene, I think what a lot of, what happens with a lot of reporters is they, they write the story before they go. Right. And then they go in and they look for the evidence to support what they've already decided to say. Whereas the, the better way to do it, I think is to go and, and just, you know, have a completely empty mind and passively sort of take in everything that you see and then go back later and try to figure out, well, what did that all mean? You know? And what you, I think what you find is that, um, you know, each instance is different uh, you're, if you're, if you're ending up writing the same story over and over again from the same point of view and the characters sound the same each time and, um, then, you know, you've got a problem. I think the, you know that things are good when, uh, each story is standalone, it's idiosyncratic and the details mean different things, different times. So that, yeah, you're, you're right. It is meditative. Right. In that sense. So let's say you walk into, you're on the campaign trail, you're, tasked with covering Trump early on, you walk into a press conference, are there certain questions that you'll ask yourself when you walk into that room to notice certain details or make sure that you're coming at it from uh, as sober a place as possible? Sure. And that's a great example. So I I remember very vividly being uh, at Plymouth State University in New Hampshire. This is one of my first times covering Trump. And we all walked in and the press, they put us up on on a riser, you know, in the middle of the hall with the ropes around us. And, you know, we're like zoo animals, basically, in the middle of the crowd. And Trump had been experimenting with bringing us into his act. Right. Like, so he had, he had this sort of preset rambling stump speech, but he had been occasionally sort of pointing at the press or he would mention them offhandedly. Now he, he directly brought us in. He like points to us. He says, look at those bloodsuckers that had never come so far to see an act. They never did. They, they didn't think I could, could uh, succeed. Um, now look at me. And they're they're so wrong. And the crowd physically turns to us. And it's like this menacing thing. And. The reaction, the almost universal reaction of everybody in the press corps was, you know, what an asshole. Like, you know, he, he's, he's uh, demonizing us. He's weaponizing his speeches and everything like that. The first question I had is, was where is the hostility towards us in this audience coming from? Is there any kind of genuineness to, to that? And if so, what is he tapping into? What have, what have we done wrong over the years that made this technique effective, right? And I think, I think that was a really important moment for me uh, in, in that campaign and understanding what Trump was doing. Trump was essentially putting the whole political conventional wisdom on trial. He made us, uh, us, the donors, the political parties, uh, he made us the characters uh, and made made the election a referendum on us, and I think that was incredibly smart in a in a, in a primitive kind of way, uh, and and being able to recognize that early was really important for me because um, it, it made me understand what what Trump was trying to do, and I think a lot of the others missed it. Right. Yeah. And it's in another way, it's dividing the audience. Right. So people aren't deciding now whether or not they like Trump. They're, he's kind of shifting it in the way that the a comedian will divide. Oh, like, oh, this side of the room is doing really well. Right. That side, of the, you know, and then all the attention 
is shifted in an interesting way. So you noticed that absolutely that, that you that you set up that he set that up, and then did you start writing about how the press had um, had created this kind of world? I've heard you talk about it in the past, where um, you you as the press were identifying. Uh, candidates as kind of like, you know, who would be the most fun to have a beer with? Right. And like this kind of, you, you talked about as you're covering it as a bad reality show and now you have a professional reality star stepping into the ring yeah, and playing that game. Yeah, I know. And the press had never had to deal with becoming part of that WWE thing before. Like they, they, they were so aggressively um, determined not to be part of the narrative. Like my, the first day I, I ever covered uh, the campaign, um, I came in and I had a little camera and I, I was just sent taking a picture for my girlfriend at the time. Like, look, I'm on the, you know, my first day at school, I took a picture, right. Of the bus, you know, it's like boys in the bus thing. And I ended up in the Washington post the next day, like the media critic, Howard Kurtz, Howard Kurtz wrote a story about how Rolling Stone was sending somebody to spy on the press corps. Like it was an unwritten rule. Like and somebody came to me and said, dude, this is a no fly zone. Like we are not part of the story. You don't, you don't talk about us. Trump just he he trashed that he stepped all over it and and as you said it's it, it, he divided people's thoughts he solved his own accessibility problem you know Donald Trump is a billionaire from New York he's never interacted with a normal with an ordinary person in his life but he pointed to us and we're mostly upper you know upper middle class Ivy League whatever um, and we look like snobs and we were you know we dressed a certain way and. He deflected attention from his own billionaireness uh, by putting it on us, and it was brilliant. You know, right. I mean, I think I think if you were a reporter and you didn't recognize how smart that was, you you were cheating yourself, and uh, and and uh, they didn't they didn't get it for the most of the time. I didn't think anyway. And but you got it right away. I yeah, I definitely saw it. I know I understood what he was trying to do, and I and I also understood that he was taking. You know, stump speeches are boring, right? What's a stump speech? So, you know, when candidates are out in the campaign trail, they have basically a pitch. They go from town to town. They're like traveling salesmen. And they have this basically a mental suitcase that they open and they just give you a whole bunch of market tested lines. And the crowds are supposed to cheer at certain times. And, and it's the same speech over and over again. They deliver it 50, 100, 200 times. Um, and it's a it's a dull format. It's it's bluntly intended to just get certain uh, marketing points out there, like I'm in favor of X policy. You know, I I served in the military, whatever. Uh, Trump realized that people had begun to hate that format, that they found it phony, uh, that they didn't like the market tested aspects of it. Like most speeches were just collections of words that. Uh, market analysts had had determined audiences like like conservative audiences like words like family strong um, uh, responsibility right liberal audiences like words like compassion um, uh, help uh, you know so and so and so candidates would get up there and they would say a whole bunch of stuff but actually what they're just doing is they're throwing words at you and audiences had tuned into the fact that this was basically like a commercial and so Trump blew up the whole you know format and turned it into this WWE style thing where like 
he was essentially urging people on to this conflict with you know, representatives of the establishment that were in the room, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was a real immediate, like menacing thing. And that also was smart. I mean, he was, he was putting on a real show, you know, as opposed to just, you know, throwing out a bunch of lines to people and it worked. Right. Know? Yeah. I've heard you uh, talk about the fact that Trump has been really good for media and CNN's going to make over a billion dollars in profit this year. And it's largely because of um, this uh, setup where where conflicts exist. You talked about like crossfire. So it's like a crossfire format and the conflict is never resolved. So it's you, know, you on one side, me on the other. We argue until commercial break and then we go on. We continue to argue. And as soon as that conflict is resolved, people would start tuning out. Right. Which I hate because I think that it just further divides people. It doesn't and it doesn't model healthy adult communication. Right. One thing that I like about podcasting is that it's long form enough mm-hmm. that if you and I disagree about something, we can hopefully hash it out mm-hmm. and and get to the bottom of it yeah. and maybe find some common ground. Mm-hmm. And talk about it like rational adults, right? Like, the, like, like you really would in real life, right? If we, if we were dinner guests, we wouldn't sit there and just trade blows all night <laughs> yeah. right we would we would say well what are, what's your position what's my position you know maybe you know you would have a generous attitude towards somebody who is a visitor in your home right and you would try to figure out what what the deal is um the, the those shows don't work that way though uh the, the the conflict is what you're selling and trump is the perfect product in that media environment because no one has a neutral opinion of him and he 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 does not unite people like he he is a person you put him on television half the audience is going to be cheering and half the audience is going to be you know in in a blood curdling scream hating him which is perfect for the business right uh, but it's bad for the country i mean you know it, it, it he was he was a very negative um you know i think he's he's negative in the sense that he brings us down to a bad mental place but it, it was also um one of the reasons that he was so successful is that he walked into a commercial media system that was designed exactly to elevate somebody like him and it was it was like a marriage made in hell as, as far as i was concerned right yeah um i've noticed that you take on issues that people maybe have not made their mind up about. So I'm, uh, as you know, I'm a surfer, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of, uh, coastal conservation issues, the majority of people just don't give a shit about because they don't know <laughs> they don't, because they're not on the coast, you know? Right, right, right. But if you let people know about it, it's not like a gun control issue where you already know which way the room's going to be divided and people mm-hmm. are going to dig their heels in and th- start throwing grenades at each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a real power in picking issues where people maybe haven't made their minds up about and, yeah. uh, and doing the motherfucker awards and, and picking the issues that we picked for the six categories. So mm-hmm. it was, Land, air, water, fire, spirit, and spirit, reality yeah, yeah, yeah. for uh, efforts to break the human spirit. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, Chris and I really work to try and pick issues that at least not all of them would be so simple as left, right, partisan. No, I no- I noticed that and I thought that was cool. Thank you. I yeah, appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, because like, just take bank banking, for example, that shouldn't be a left-right issue because it, yeah, everyone's going to lose their money. Right. 
Yeah, most issues aren't left-right issues, actually. Uh, you know, except for the sort of social issues, like you know, something like abor- like abortion, right? That's something where a certain number of people have, a f- have an opinion about it. It's probably close to fifty-fifty, but most issues are, roughly speaking, rich versus poor issues. You know, uh, it's it's a few people benefit from some very negative policy and most everybody else regardless of their politics is is equally a victim you know whether it's uh, banking corruption or uh, pollution on the coastline or wildfires or whatever it is um most yeah, things- well our comic had the bit last night about oh my god yeah. pg&e for uh turning earth into a post-apocalyptic hellscape so we don't care if you're rich or poor we're bringing community together by burning everyone's house down. That's right. Yeah, the rich might sleep in the squash court, and yeah. the poor might might be sleeping in the gym. But yeah. we're all under one roof. Yeah, uh, yeah. That was that was really funny. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, Leo Flowers nailed that one. He was he was really funny. Yeah. yeah, that was that was a great act. No, but you're right. I think that's, and I think that's um, one of the reasons I've been having a little bit of a problem lately in the business is that I, I do try to I try to pick issues that don't fit in a box. You know, like I, I hate those issues. I, I hate just throwing red meat to an audience. Like it's not, there's no thought involved, right? So, um, I try to pick something that, you know, people theoretically across the spectrum could read and say, what, what about that? Um, but that's getting harder and harder to do in this media landscape. Like they, they want shorter and shorter, uh, you know, material, and they want it to to be thrown to a specific demographic and that's just it's it's difficult most it, i think that's one of the reasons the environmental reporting is is you don't get as much of it as you could because it it it's bipartisan it crosses boundaries right and um yeah, yeah it's, only it's people on the left breathe air right yeah exactly <laughs> i mean this is not true you know so right yeah um and uh how do you how do you grapple with that now, man? Like, I mean, you're you need to continue to add tools to the tool belt, and I mean, let's let's face it, comedy is one of the best ways to do that. It's the shortest distance between two people, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, is that what you're doing now? Is just making trying to be funnier and funnier, or like what? How do you? You know, how do you pull it off? It's it's tough. Um, the campaign story. I'm, I, as much as I usually hate covering the campaign, the campaign is 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 going to start soon, and uh, that is a story that in the in the beginning, in the early parts anyway, is almost always funny. Like the campaigns usually start out funny because that's where you have the uh, the candidates who are going to fail. Who um, oftentimes they're people who just have grandiose delusions about you know being president and they find out right away that people hate them and that's funny and uh so that story um is going to be a bit of a relief for me because you know it's it's been a very it's been a deeply unfunny couple of years i think since (laughs) since uh since donald trump got elected when he first came on the the campaign it was actually really funny remember that whole early clown car thing with all those candidates and they were all crazy you know ben ben carson uh you know, angrily insisting to reporters that he had, in fact, stabbed somebody when he was a, a young man. You know, like um, those candidates were nuts. That was a funny story, but then it got very dark very quickly, and we—I don't think we've come out of that yet. So um, I'm looking forward to a little bit of levity, anyway, right. uh, in the early part. Have you ever uh, thought about doing stand-up? 
uh, when I was really young, but I, I, I'm just not funny in that way. I don't think, um, you know, the, you just have to be a certain uh, uh, kind of person to, right. to pull that off. I so. love what you said earlier about how, like, the public speaking, a lot of, like, um, a lot of that just takes getting up there and right. speaking from the belly and doing it. Whereas yeah. writing takes this intense chipping away at your own ego yeah. and fiddling with words endlessly and if you have that combination then you can do something really brilliant with it yeah no my my thing when i was younger was much more like intense self-loathing and uh <laughs> and and fear of uh, other people and agoraphobia so like uh, none, none of those things really added up to stand-up comedy but i i wish that could have been a comic right. i mean kind of, i mean it's the greatest job in the yeah. world it seems to me so do you feel yeah. like you've gotten over that um, I mean, I've had to do a lot of public speaking right. you know, since since doing this job, yeah. but um, but just the self criticism when you write, you feel like the conversations become more friendly in your mind, or no? Uh, no, no, uh, no. They're still basically horrible. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, I think if you get if you ever get to a place where you where you're not feeling the same way, then that's usually a, a warning sign that you're you're starting to be an asshole. So <laughs> what do you, what do you mean? Um, I mean, I think you just, though, the, 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 most people, a lot, a lot of really good writers, if you look back in history and I, and you know, a lot of my heroes were, were like this, they were just incredible depressives people who, um, especially the funny ones, incidentally, like the, the, the ones who tended to be the comics were the ones who were, who were just full of despair and depression and self-loathing, and this is how they cheered themselves up. Um, and usually, like if you if you stop having that self-critical process and you stop being down on yourself, then suddenly um, you're you probably are becoming a bore on paper. That's usually what I've found. Right. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe there's not a correlation, but it's it's similar no, to co- I mean, comics who become happy. Like they they you know it's like Eddie Murphy now. Is he funny? I don't know. You know. Like, yeah. yeah. Do you think it's possible to lead a well-adjusted life and still be brilliantly funny? Uh, probably, probably, I mean, you know, some things probably translate, right? Like physical comedy. Like if you're good at that, you're always going to be good at that. Right. Yeah. Like morning yoga, gratitude journal, and then a line of speed. (laughs) 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 Gotta keep it balanced. Right. Exactly. (laughs) You're doing my line of speed and then I meditate. (laughs) Works out well. Um, well, hey, man, I want to be respectful of your time, but I, I really want to talk um, about the banking system sure. before we wrap up. Um, this is something that uh, I've cared about for a long time, um, ever since my 92-year-old grandfather woke up one morning and uh, found out that his life savings had been... Oh, no, dis- was it his pension? Uh, it was his pension from Bernie Madoff. Oh. And uh, he was actually the... Uh, he was the poster boy of that because he went of that whole um, media frenzy because he went back to work as a grocer at 91 years old. Uh-huh. And, uh, oh my God. And so it was like, Ian Tierman goes back to work now. Everybody's like, well, if I didn't think I was going to be alive for another 10 years, I wouldn't do it. But, you know. Oh, my God. But uh, I think that um, you've done a, a really good job making this issue digestible for people um, and have figured out a way to tell that story. Um in a in an important way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to hear your thoughts on, you know, w- w- where we are now and and what questions people should be asking themselves about 
the financial system and moving forward? Well, I, I mean, there's so much, but yeah. I think the, fir- the first thing people need to realize is that um, financial power has, has been concentrated in a way that is unique in history. Like, really, only a few companies now control virtually um, all of the capital in, in the world. Uh, in the United States, it's a, it's four or five banks that, that, that control the bulk of all the deposits. And they have an, an immense amount of power to move markets, to affect prices. We've, we've seen the latest round of scandals, you know, the ones that, that I covered, had to do with coordinated market manipulations. So you're talking about things like affecting the price of the dollar versus the franc or the, the, the world interest rates. They're able to just sort of mess with those things. They, go in, they can go in and fundamentally monkey around with the DNA of the world economy in, in ways that people just have no clue about. Um, and it's it's very scary. They they just have they have an enormous amount of power. They're almost totally unregulated. The, the government, um, you know, has is almost completely um, unable to police most of the kinds of corruptions that and corruption that goes on. They they are able to do a couple of things really well, like they can catch insider trading pretty well, but most of the other stuff they they. They're just not equal to, uh, and and as a result, we've seen this succession of increasingly serious and crazy corruption cases, which you know should scare the hell out of people. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Um, and uh, are you con- are you would you say that you are just as interested in? Uh, I mean, you've been covering it now for the last ten years intensely um, for Rolling Stone. Would you say that at this point your your interest is still there with it, or is it shifted into new topics? I know you're working on uh, a new book called The Fairway, right? Yeah, which is uh, as you said, kind of like a, a rethink of manufacturing consent. Yeah, yeah, that's um, at taibi.substack.com. No, it's a it's a um, it's a media criticism book. It's it's really about campaign journalism and what's wrong with it. It's sort of a I'm trying to get it. It's going to be in print form uh, probably early next year, and the idea is to make it like a, a user's guide to how to read campaign reporting and to spot all the little things that we do to, to kind of shape your opinion. Um, but uh, I, I, w- I love the Wall Street story. I would have stayed on that forever if I could have. Um, uh, I, I think uh, we went through a period where... Um, our editors weren't as excited about continuing to do it. They felt like essentially what I was doing was was continuing to relitigate the 2008 crash. But um, the you know the the, the problems uh, remain, and they're they're what's probably going to end up happening is that we're going to have another financial crisis, another another bubble is going to burst, and I'm going to end up back in that beat uh, sooner rather than later. So um, I'm not saying I'm looking forward to that, but, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm ready for that. Um, have you ever had conversations with people like Jamie Dimon? Not at the CEO level, no. I've had a lot of conversations with people on Wall Street, though, uh, over the years. And, and in fact, almost all my sources for that came from that world. This is one of the things that um, was interesting. It was when, when I first started writing about Wall Street in 2008 and 2009, uh, the first story I did 
was um, was largely based on uh, a couple of interviews, and, and it was about the AIG bailout. Uh, but as soon as I did that story, which essentially was trying to explain the AIG episode to ordinary people in a way that they could understand, suddenly I was getting calls from all these people who worked at like medium and smaller sized uh, hedge funds, uh, private equity companies, and they all had basically the same gripe which was the system is tilted in favor of these giant companies like Goldman Sachs and Chase and, uh, and Wells Fargo. And we, the little person, uh, you know, we get screwed in, uh, with all this ramp- rampant corruption. And they, be- they really became my sources about everything from market manipulation to subprime mortgage fraud to all that stuff. And so people, I constantly got the criticism, oh, this is like the socialist critique of Wall Street. No, it's a Wall Street critique of Wall Street. Like that—that's what I, what I was doing. So um, I've talked to a lot of those people, and I've argued with um, a lot some of the executives from some of those companies over over the stories I've done. Uh, but I've I've never gotten to sit down and you know have a tete a tete with like Lloyd Blankfein or or Jamie Dimon or somebody like that. What do you think that conversation would sound like? I think it's, you know, it's funny. They're different. All those characters are different. Like Lloyd Blankfein, I think is actually a really smart person. Who is that? He, he was the he was the former head of Goldman Sachs. Uh, he was the CEO of Goldman during the critical period of you know between two thousand seven and like a couple of years ago. Lloyd is, is the, was the kind of person who probably has enough self-awareness to recognize how screwed up his company was and how, how deeply corrupt it was. And he's just extremely, uh, he, that would be an interesting conversation because he'd be, he'd be tough to pin down. Others, like Jamie Dimon, they're just like, he, he's a raving egomaniac. He, he is so used to bullying people uh, in conversation. You actually see this if you look at his Senate testimony. He's so unused to being challenged um, that he, he just he responds with pure aggression the instant you, th- you throw a bad question at him. And so, he's the CEO of he's a Chase. CEO, he's the CEO of Joe Chase, yeah. So, J.P. Morgan Chase. J.P. JP Morgan Chase. So they're all different. Um, some of them are, are, you know, like they're C-minus brains, literally, like guys who aren't smart at all. They somehow become heads of these gigantic companies, like the guy who, who ran Lehman Brothers into the ground. His name was Dick Fold, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, and he, he was a complete idiot. Like uh, people in the company hated him to such a degree that when he was forced out of the head of the job, he stuck around and, and was using the company gym a few days later. And somebody just walked up and belted him in the face while he was on the uh, on the treadmill. the treadmill. Yeah, exactly. So there's there's a whole spectrum of CEOs that they're it's it, it's interesting. Like the system doesn't filter out the dumb ones. Right. Sometimes they they get get elevated. So if you got Jamie Dimon in a room, what would be the series of questions you would ask him? That would be a tough interview. I think what I would do is I would pick a specific. Um, instance where there was a paper trail that led him that where where I could I could put him in, um, tie him to something that that Chase had done um, there was a subprime mortgage fraud case for instance where he was on the record talking about um, early on about how 
he knew that there were certain um, uh, mortgage investments that had that they hadn't done proper vetting of, right? And uh, he later told a very different story about that, about how he he too was duped by the market, uh, and he didn't know that they were that they were selling a bad product to all these people. Um, but he, I, I just think that with a a person like that, you have to just stay focused and and stick to a couple of like questions that there is no good answer to uh, because they're going to they're going to try every conceivable method to psychologically bully you so if i was jamie diamond what would you say i would say okay and i I know that it's like a series probably the first question wouldn't get there so you could i'm going to give you room to do like questions two and three yeah so i would i would start with like what was your company's policy about um when when you when you bundled subprime mortgages and resold them to customers what kind of promise did you did your company make to the people who were buying those investments what was in that prospectus did you promise that you would had examined every mortgage in in, in that um, in that portfolio because that this, just just to digress briefly this is what was going on so some fly-by-night company like countrywide would go out and give mortgages to every person with a pulse in a neighborhood those mortgages would then be sold to a big bank. The big bank would then bundle all those mortgages, make them into a kind of hamburger, and then sell them off to like a pension fund. But the the fraud came when basically they didn't look at who the who the borrowers were. So like in that group of mortgages, there might have been some person who you know is like a part-time grocer or worked in a Wendy's or something like that, but was representing that they had made $100,000 a year. So the job of the bank is to go through there and say, that person couldn't possibly have that much income. We got to get that mortgage out of the pool because the person who buys this from us is going to take a huge loss. So what they were doing is systematically not checking. All right. So that, so that's, that's what the fraud was. And so you have to, like a prosecutor, you have to lay out what was your policy, right? Um, what happened to people who bought these instruments? Did they end up taking losses? Did you make representations to them that you that you had checked everything? And then if he says if he says uh, no, then you show him the documents and show him where he's. So wrong. what do you what would you predict he would say in response to that? Oh, I think he would he would probably. Um, I mean, he's been asked about this, and and what they always do is say, you know, at, oh, at my level, like, I couldn't possibly have known about things that were going on, um, you know, at the micro level of the company, and we were just as duped as everybody else by the market, but there are, there are internal communications that are out there that show otherwise with a lot of these people. Uh, with Goldman, it's the same thing, and... Um, but that's you know that's that's a very rare opportunity right. that, that you get get a chance to really put in the, right. The, there's a reason why they don't talk to certain kinds of reporters sure. because because the Matt Taibbi's <laughs> right yeah exactly so he would say that and then what would you hit him with next I would hit him with like well here's here's what you said here right here I mean here here it is in print here's here's an email that you sent or here's a text that you sent. Uh, indicating that you know you knew about X, Y, and Z at X date, right? Would you have that right there with yeah, you? Yeah, you'd have to. I mean, you know, it's the, the, those kinds of interviews. You have to prepare for them like a prosecutor does, and you have you have to imagine every eventuality, you know, every kind of answer, um, and you know, and you have to be ready for them. You have to have a, a, a factual reply for every every one of them. But the unfortunate thing about journalism is that you don't often get a chance to to do those kinds of interviews. Um, and uh, the 
there's there's just less and less uh, opportunity to to do interviews where you get a sequence of questions. That's one of the things about like the press conference format you'll see at the White House. There's a reason they do it that way. Um, they do it that way because one question usually doesn't get you there, right? Uh, and you need five or six usually. Uh, and you know if if they can bl- if they can blow off your first question and move on to the next person, they're usually safe. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you show this document, then what would Jamie Dimon, let's just in a, in this world where you, cause I think it's, it's so often, um, people put too much focus on the first question of the interview. And I can tell that you think very deeply about the second, third and fourth question to sure, really because, get where you're going. Because I, I mean, I also want to know for myself, are we, are we dealing with, an isolated incident of small, low-level rogue operators in the company, or, or is this a high-level intentional policy that everybody has agreed upon? You know, because there's a lot of things that are, there's sort of circumstantial evidence that lead you to think a certain way. Like, for instance, when a company starts making billions of dollars, right, and their and their bottom line is 12% better than the euro than the previous year, it's not like the CEO doesn't sit down and say, hmm, wonder why that happened, right? Like, they know why they're making money. And, you know, in the case of Goldman Sachs, which is uh, unlike Chase, is a company where we have a huge documentary record of what they were thinking um, for a couple of years about mortgages, for instance. There's a, the, the Senate did an investigation, they subpoenaed an ass load of documents. I've got them all in my, uh, in my apartment. And you can see what they were thinking what, and how they were thinking about it amongst themselves. Um, but you want to know, for your own sake, are we dealing with you know, a couple of offices that were you know, just out to make a quick buck and a few bonuses, or is this, was this a system-wide thing? And in, you know, in almost every case, it's, it, it turns out to be a system-wide thing. It's like um, you know, one of your winners last night, Purdue Pharmaceutical, right? I mean, these companies know that... Um, when they have a marketing campaign, when they, you know, ask, tell doctors that it's a good thing to ask people, uh, what your pain level is on a scale of one to 10, that the likelihood is that, you know, over a period of time, that's going to lead to more people getting prescribed medication, which is going to lead to more people being addicted, which is going to lead to all these other ancillary sales. Um, so you, you have to know all that information and, and you have to try to figure out, whether the business model is based on some kind of corruption or whether it's just, you know, a, a rogue operator. Right. Would you say that the theme, like, so last night at the, the Motherfucker Awards, would you say that that was the theme through, like, I because I, I think about this a lot. Like, there, there are these various issues in the world, and, like, how can we zoom back far enough to figure out what the similarities are? Is it just that all these businesses have massive externalities and they're, they're putting the burden of the cost onto us, the people? Um, Purdue Pharma does that in the form of, you know, putting the cost onto the coroner's office and the firefighters that need to deal with the ERs. Or the ERs and, yeah. You know, these are, these are all these costs. Or if it's Tyson Foods, you know, that's the nitrates in the water in the drinking water um or with the banks it's on taxpayers when they need to get bailed out right yeah no i mean the unfortunately the i think the there's a lot of commonalities one of them is that 
um, all these companies have amassed overwhelming market share. So uh, they're able to do things that they wouldn't be able to do if they had um, real earnest competition. Uh, there's almost no regulation. Um, most of the regulators, I mean, there's there's a major problem that, that happens with regulation, which is that the private, the private enterprise pays so much better so that the better lawyers, the better brains always work for the companies, right? I mean, the financial criminals are just smarter than the people who work at the SEC because the SEC people are the people who, you know... There's a brain drain. Right, there's a brain drain. So there's a, there's a lot of commonalities, but these companies, you know, I think at the core, the probably the core theme of your award ceremony last night is that they all have sociopathic business models, you know? I mean, they... Whether it's based upon selling beverages that you know are going to be end up in a plastic bottle that's going to that's that is not going to disintegrate that's going to end up in the ocean that's going to you know, that is never going to go anywhere. I mean, how how can you? Uh, as I say that as I drink a diet coke. Um, it's not plastic, though. Yeah, it's We're not okay. plastic. Yeah, but um, but you know, the reality is they know, you but, know. Yeah, but I think that that's so. You just say like, well, I say that as I drink the diet coke. I struggle with this a lot. How much responsibility should be put on the individual? How much should be put on the corporation? Because you look at a company like Coke um, that will distribute plastic products to a country like Indonesia that they know full well has no way of dealing with the way dealing with the product because they don't have the waste infrastructure. Right. So you end up with the you know the photos of the plastic porn you know going down oh, in yeah. rivers. How much and but I think that it's very smart of these companies to say, well, it's not our problem what you do with the product. You know, this is about you know you throw it in the recycling bin or, you know, it's for Purdue Pharma. It's you know it, this is about people abusing opioids. Right. Well, the problem is the companies are legally mandated in many cases to pursue the the line of behavior that is going to max create the maximum amount of profit for their shareholders. So even if they even if they settle on a corporate strategy that they know is going to create enormous social damage, sometimes they they their out is, well we have to do that, you know. Right. Like our shareholders will vote us out if we don't do that and then we'll install someone else who will do that. Um, and the problem is that this is why cor corporate personhood drives me nuts. Like I think it, 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 there's no ability to stop the the intellectual machinery of a corporation from continuing to pursue profit above all else. It's designed to do that. It has to do that. It's you know it's the Terminator. It's a shark. It, it can't it can't stop doing what it right. does. Will you break down corporate personhood quickly for people who don't know? Yeah, I mean, basically a. a a, a, cor a corporation um, is ha has the same civil rights legally uh, as a person does, but based on a series of legal rulings that date back to the late 1800s with the, with the railroads. Um, as a result, you know, corporations have the right to free speech, which has been interpre interpreted as the right to donate money to political campaigns. They have rights to privacy that they wouldn't otherwise have. They have um, they have the right to uh, to violate the First Amendment rights of their employees. They have their all kinds of rights that they that have accrued over the years uh, because they've been as they've been as it's been interpreted. So as like money has been, been uh, is seen now as a form of speech. Right. So a corporation can donate 
because a legal person has the right to free speech. Right, exactly. And it's funny because corporations originally, the, the, the original idea of a corporation was that it was, it was a thing that was created to complete a task, and then once the task was completed, it would dissolve, right? So you would, in the earliest corporations, you have, you know, maybe you would, you would form it, uh, and this entity would build a bridge in Britain or something, something like that. And then once it was over, um, it would go away and then people would create a new corporation. And, and it, w- it was a purely functional legal structure that, that didn't have any personality. It didn't have an ongoing existence. It didn't, it didn't accrue money and continue to, to build its existence anywhere. They're like, they're, it, it, that's, we have exactly the opposite model now. Now these companies, they they are self-justifying. They get bigger and bigger and bigger, and they reinvest constantly in new projects. and And um, they're not utilitarian. They have personalities, and they and they, um, they they're massive actors in the world, um, as opposed to, to being subject to people, the people who run them. You know, so I, I think that's a that's a big problem. Um, what do you think are solutions? Well, taking corporate personhood away would be a good one. I mean, uh, ending the fiduciary responsibility to shareholders, that's that's another one. Like, What is that? So, again, that's what I was talking about before. Corporations are legally mandated to make their shareholders the maximum amount of money. So if you you could create a new kind of corporation that was allowed uh, to pursue a more socially beneficial uh, uh, business model... um, there might be more room to create, um, uh, you know, a different kind of company, one that acted in the interest of the community. Um, because right now, uh, you know, like a, a Coca-Cola, they're, they, they can't add a whole lot of extra costs to develop, uh, you know, a bottle that isn't going to end up as garbage flowing down the river of Indonesia. You know, they're, they're, they legally, they can't do that. So it would be great if we could c- come up with a new kind of legal structure that would allow for, you know, people to exercise some sense when, when we do the things that we need to do. We need, we need to have beverages. We need to have chicken. We need to have all these, well, maybe we don't need to have chicken, but you know, we, we need to have a lot of things. And you know, I should tell you, interrupt you with a bit with uh, Brendan Walsh's speech about all the shit. Oh these yeah, animals yeah, yeah. Like imagine how much shit they would create if we didn't kill them. <laughs> <laughs> that was so, a good line. That was a really good line. <laughs> those lagoons are horrible, man. Yeah. Oh God. I've seen a couple of those. Those are, those are unbelievable. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with B Corps? Uh, no. What, so B Corps are b- benefit corporations. Uh-huh. So um, Patagonia, for example, is a benefit corporation. Mm-hmm. They're also a privately held corporation. So they're, okay. a bil- they're a billion dollar company, but they have specifically stayed private so that they're not subservient to um, the model shareholders, mm-hmm. right? So they can make a business decision that won't be good for profits. Um, and there's a bunch of other ones. So, so there are companies that can, uh, adopt a B Corp model. I think like cliff bar and a bunch of other, huh. these kinds of like outdoor companies are, but, um, it, yeah, it seems that I, you know, in my life have tried to figure out the best path of like, how can I do something that, doesn't feel completely meaningless, but, you know, <laughs> still able to make some money doing it and have a few laughs along the way. And when I was younger, I uh, 
thought I was going to start a nonprofit. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm going to, uh, I went around and I made this documentary series called Surfing for Change. I would do these um, short form documentaries in surf spots around the world and cover environmental issues. And um, I quickly realized that you are, if you start a nonprofit, you are uh, fighting a losing battle in a number of ways because you are a you're constantly criticized if you want to pay the ceo Mm -hmm. a lot of money Mm -hmm. right like if we if we say how much does jamie diamond make a year do you think 20 million 20 million million, right and we're like oh of course he does but if i told you that the ceo of Surfrider foundation made 20 million a year you'd be like what this is horrible like we have this like culturally we don't like people who do good work to make good money right yeah yeah. and i think it's really strange so so the nonprofit sector has this huge burnout rate where executive directors are like fuck this i'm going into the private sector where i can feed my kids yeah exactly yeah and or they do a little bit of time doing the public sector work or or the nonprofit work and then they then they go back and they make their money you know right consulting or like you know legal partnership whatever it is right right and that's not a good model yeah you're right that's interesting yeah Yeah. um but uh yeah I, i think that it's 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 really interesting to talk about and take this bird's eye view have you ever seen the documentary the corporation um I think you dig it. They talk all about what you were mentioning about uh, sociopathic tendencies uh-huh. of a corporation. Like if you look, if a corporation is a legal person, right? what tendencies are, are this person, is this person exhibiting? Right. Are they, so would you uh, classify them as sociopathic? <laughs> Probably. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in a couple of rare cases, maybe not, but you know, for the most part, uh, yeah, they're relentlessly pursuing profit. Totally, you know, vampire squid yeah, relentlessly yeah. jamming <laughs> its blood funnel into. Yeah, no, it's uh, that. That's what it is, and I, I think it's a it's a huge problem in American society because it you know corporations aren't just greedy. They're not just indifferent to social impact. They're also totally authoritarian. Right. Like think How about so? this. Well, most most people work in, in corporations, corporations. You don't have any rights in a corporation. You 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 are someone is giving you orders and you have to execute the order. And, and that's it. That That's there's no, you know, sort of group decision making process that goes on in a corporation. If they if you operate on a, on a computer terminal in, in, in their office, they're allowed to look through your stuff. They're You know, it's inside the corporation it's the most anti-democratic structure you know there is and that bleeds out into larger society because people start to acquire those attitudes um, and they start to embrace more authoritarian ways of looking at life in general Um, and so i think all these things are bad that you you know if you work for one of these companies you you tend to become dull to the fact that you're you're doing damage to the environment or to the economy or to poor people or whatever it is, and you you know you also become used to either taking orders or giving orders you know and neither of those things are good, um, and so uh, it it's fundamentally at odds with the idea that you live in a democracy. I think this is one of the things that drives me crazy about the campaign season. 
yeah, we vote once every four years, but that's the only like democratic process most of us ever participate in. We don't do it at work, right? For the most part. Uh, and it's not a way of life for us, you right. know? And I think that's a problem. Right. You know? So strengthening that citizen muscle yeah. uh, more than once every four years. Yeah. I, I think it, it would be great if, if, you know, if we sat down um and decided lots of things by either you know by voice vote or by by sitting down and coming to a consensus about them rather than just having some jerk who gets promoted tell us what to do and we execute this mindless plan and you know that sucks what would you say to people in a corporation who said yeah but you can get anything done that way yeah you know i i i understand that i mean that and and that would probably in the current model, if you had one corporation that was streamlined and everybody just took orders and, you know, and uh, aimed for efficiency above all, they would they would certainly outperform the company that talked everything over and decided not to do things that were socially harmful and all that stuff. They would make more money than the other company. That's the way it works. But we have to find a way to get to the place where it's okay to be that other company, you know? Um, Americans right now, we, we, we're just a sick society. We have no job security. We feel insecure. We feel pressure um, constantly to try to hustle for more money. And, and that causes us to behave worse because we tend, we tend to chase, uh, jobs that, you know, involve moral compromises and it's just an unhealthy society in a lot of ways. And, you know, I I don't know how to fix it, but I, I, I do know that it's not good. How, how early did you notice the sickness? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I, I left the country when I was really young, uh, when I was about 20, um, and not for any enlightened political reason, just because I was a nerd and I didn't really, f- I felt like I didn't fit in. Um, I, when I when I first got to Russia, it was still the Soviet Union, and the first thing I noticed when I got off the plane was, like in America, there's this, Ameri- there's this incredible p- pressure to like look good, to um, to show off that you have nice clothes, to show that you're doing well. Like when you meet people, they ask you, how, what are you doing for a living? Like how much are you making? Like, you know, we're in this constant state of competition. When I went to Soviet Russia, I found people were just kind of, they were all kind of equally screwed and they, that pressure just wasn't there. You know, they were, you know, they were, un, they were unhappy. They didn't have material things, but they, they, they didn't have that. You know, that that sort of overwhelming pressure to like, you know, go, go get famous. Yeah, go get famous. Get go some get, Instagram followers. Yeah, get followers, do all that stuff. They didn't have any of that bullshit. And, and it was like it was like such a feeling of relief washed over me for, for so long. Um, I think we've been in this boiling water for so long. We just don't know how bad it is. You know, I think it would be great uh, if if we could all experience not having you know, that pressure, that ring around the collar commercial that's constantly on telling us, you know, like you shouldn't have bad teeth, you shouldn't have dirty clothes or whatever it is, you know, I mean, focus on being a better person and happier and all that stuff. Right. Did did psychedelics at all help you come to that 
view or do you think that that just happened on your own just growing up maybe no. i mean i you know i took uh what's your psychedelic of choice acid or um yeah lsd probably yeah. lsd or mushrooms i yeah. love mushrooms <laughs> i love going to big sur and eating some mushrooms and <laughs> meditating underneath a tree and looking out at the pacific ocean that's that like must be awesome like after this month of doing the motherfucker awards i'm going directly to big sur <laughs> with a big bag of mushrooms <laughs> i'm gonna reflect on <laughs> everything that just happened that's a good idea yeah yeah, just you know, and and on mushrooms, every minute is like an hour, so you, you it'll be it'll be great. You'll have lots and lots of time. Yeah, yeah. No, my my psychedelic experiences tended to be more depressing. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I'm just more of a negative person. But um, you know, I would do things like I played basketball in college, so I took mushrooms during a basketball game, uh, and so I would I would I would always do it like as a way to see what the impact was of having a basically not functioning, fully functioning mind, uh, during a normal (laughs) thing. And would you notice certain patterns or certain, because you see it and your job and what you do really well is trying to explain what you see every day to people that don't. Right. And I can tell that you care enough to do that. It's right. not easy work. You could be doing much easier work. Yeah. But like something's keeping you in this, in it. And I think it's because you care. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, th- I think uh, one of the things that's, that psychedelics are great for is they, they take you out of whatever your point of view is and they force you to look at things from like all these weird states of mind that you would never have considered before and the value of that long term is that you realize that there's an infinite way of looking at everything you know uh, you can be in any situation and, and you um and y- you shouldn't be married to any particular thought pattern or any, or any particular point of view uh, and it's it's useful to kind of try to imagine things from different angles and, uh, you know, it's as funny as this dark, whatever it is in journalism, the, the value of that is just not getting locked into a pattern and, and, and just kind of reporting things according to what, you know, the, the normal script is. Um, so I think, you know, it, it is a useful tool to, to keep, you know, looking fresh at the world, you know, um, probably at my age it's probably not a good idea to do too much of it but yeah but i think that that that's a really good perspective to have mm-hmm. to not ossify the mind right and it's easy to do that i mean we started talking about louis ck and we can we can end here but he he says like as i get older like it, I just don't care about the world as much. <laughs> no, it's like true. Like my circle of care just gets tightened. Yeah, yeah, no, and, absolutely. Um, I appreciate the fact that you push against that. Yeah. And, uh, no, I think you have to, you know, as you get older, you definitely fall into patterns. And um, and in, the, in, this, in this business in particular, one of the things that happens is that there's a lot of groupthink and there's a tremendous temptation to just kind of serve up what everybody else is saying. Um, but part of the job is to constantly test all those propositions and to kind of lean into public opinion and say, well, maybe it's this way and not that way, you know? And, and 
and to try to and sometimes that is unpopular right like you will um say something that that maybe people don't want you to say like the thing the, the louis ck joke what he's essentially saying is that people who um who are anti-abortion they're not necessarily irrational right <laughs> right um which is which would be a revolutionary thing for a person to say, like in the Nation magazine, for instance, right? You can you would you would have a tough time saying that, but it's it's uh, it's I think it's a valuable thing to say. Like you should be able to say, you know, people who have different opinions they're not necessarily crazy, they're not horrible, necessarily evil. Like um, it's good to be able to do that sometimes, and uh, but it's probably easier to do in comedy than <laughs> in, in in what I do. I don't know. I'm rambling at this point. Man, thank yeah. you so much for taking the time. Thank you very I, much, Kyle. And thank you so much for the Motherfucker Awards. Those were great. And uh, congratulations. I hope it, hope it becomes an institution. That's our show. I'm going to play you out the song called 1980 by Dirt Nasty. Dirt Nasty, a.k.a. Simon Rex, was one of the comedians last night who accepted a Motherfucker Award on behalf of Purdue Pharma for outstanding contributions to break the human spirit. Uh, once again, those videos will be posted to themotherfuckerawards.com within the next two days. If you like this episode and you want more like it, you can go back to episode 128 called Idea Sex with Hunter Motts. Here's a quick clip from that conversation. The whole of gun germs and steel centers around it begins with what he calls Yali's question. So Yali was this this New Guinean man, this Papua New Guinean guy, who asked him this very simple question, why does the West have so much cargo? Like, cargo is what Papua New Guineans call wealth or property. And he was like, why do they have so much stuff and we have so little? And Yali's question was, like many great questions, simple, straightforward, to the point, and was a question that I'd always had, because I'd grown up as Brian Callen uh, always makes this great joke that our childhood was seeing great poverty from inside an air-conditioned car, and that was our childhood, and it's massively discombobulating. Once again, that was episode 128, if you want more. Signing off for now. Hope you all have a wonderful day. Hope you have a chance to get in the water. If you're near an ocean, jump in that. If you're near a lake, dive in that. And if you're in a bathtub, you don't want to jump or dive into that, but you can slap. Slap? What do you do into a bathtub? You don't, you just climb into a bathtub. No fast movements while getting into a bathtub. That's always important. Uh, anyway, give someone a high five. Give this show a rating on iTunes if you dig it. Share it with a friend. Uh, show's ad-free, so if you want to donate, you can head to my website, kyle.surf, or click the link below this episode where I say, buy me a cup of coffee on Patreon. Um, and Matt Taibbi's on Twitter. He's all over the place, so I recommend checking out more of his work um he's one of my favorite writers and damn what a fun episode um really enjoyed that conversation all right hope you enjoy the song called 1980 by dirt nasty what happened to your queer party friends i got a gold chain i'm on cocaine I'm like, yo, man. What, 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 what? I rolled in straight from Oakland, holding my dick like a U.S. Open trophy. What up to hyphen? Y'all don't know me. Dirt nasty, ass cheeks, spread wide. G-string to the side. One drink, Cavassier. Two drink, box straight. Three drink, I'm in the sink. 
throwing up on my brand new man, Coke, and I'm doing Coke. Y'all can't hold my donkey broke. No, call the pop. Pray for me. Go Rolls Royce with your lady. I lived through the 80s, and shit was crazy. Everybody wanna know my name. Bring the pain and pop the champagne. Every girl wanna hold my chain when I fuck their brains out on the mascot. Gold chain. Tell your girl to stop paging me. What? 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 I walked in, stoned as hell. White lines, gold gazelles. Hotel on sunset. Young hoes get undressed. Dirt dick ain't done yet. Insert the clip and get the gun wet. Snuff set, I'm radical. T-shirts say party animal. I ain't no amateur. This ain't no hands across America. I shine like Morrissey on Hennessy on Christmas Eve. No, not more like Morris Day on Hella Yang. Dressing gay. I lived through the 80s. And shit was crazy Everybody wanna know my name Bring the pain and pop the champagne Every girl wanna hold my chain When I fuck their brains out on the mask I got a gold chain Tell your girl to stop paging me.